Will you become hopelessly addicted, a recoil, and explode into a million fiery shards? The answer, at least with regards to Project Power, is likely to fall somewhere in between. That's from Justin Chang of the LA Times. Justin Chang, a friend of Cinephile, had him on in the past. You can always read his work in the Los Angeles Times. He's a great film critic. That's his review of Project Power. It's on Netflix. Uh, it stars Jimmy Fox. It just came out this weekend. That's one of the movies I'll be reviewing this time. As always, Rags Time. And Scott Rogowski is going to go deep on a critical member of the film community that I hadn't heard of, he hadn't heard of, and all of you probably haven't heard of, but you should. That's going to be coming up a little later on, plus a truncated review of The Old Guard. And in honor of Rob Lemley's suggestion, the Mount Rushmore of the best years in film history. We'll go through some of the best of all time when you think about it. These are some loaded years that we're able to have. And lastly, we also have Sam Hopkins, and he is the director of Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. I recently reviewed that documentary which is on Netflix, and Sam was kind enough to join us from the UK, so that interview is coming up. If you liked the, uh, like the documentary, you're going to like Sam because he gives lots of good insights into how that project came together and his behind-the-scenes understanding of not only the mafia but also law enforcement, and it's very, very cool. Uh, as always, please do go to uh, Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, thanks to the bad guy 127 and Roderick Jane. Very clever. Cone Brothers pseudonym for editing. I like it. Both of those guys left very nice uh, reviews for me, so I appreciate that. Please do spread the word on Cinephile Pod, uh, and you can always hit me up at Adnan S. Virk. All right, let's start with Project Power. So when a pill that gives its users unpredictable superpowers for five minutes hits the streets of New Orleans, a teenage dealer and a local cop must team with an ex-soldier to take down the group responsible for its creation. So this is kind of one of these big action movies that you'd normally expect at the multiplex. And I think it would have been, honestly, certainly more enjoyable on a big screen. But for a pleasant diversion on Netflix, it certainly got the job done. Jamie Foxx stars as that ex-soldier. He's always such a committed actor and a real talent. He's one of those guys that can do so many different things when you see how versatile he is in terms of singing, acting, dancing, the whole rest of it. But here it's a fairly straightforward role. He plays art uh, ex-soldier, trying to figure out where these pills are coming from, what's happening with these pills, and trying to find out what happened to his daughter. Then there's Joseph Gordon-Levitt, an actor I like a lot as well. He plays Frank, who's a cop, who's taking the pill, and he's doing it more to try to keep up with the bad guys. Is he a drug addict? Is he, you know, like a McNulty here in the wire, hitting the booze a little too hard, or is he actually trying to do his job? You'll find out. And Dominique Fishback is really good in the movie. She plays Robin, uh, who is the, the young heroine. A couple of times she's spitting out freestyle. Those are some of the best uh, scenes in the movie. But the story is fairly straightforward. Like I said, people take these pills. You literally give it a twist. It looks like a contact C. You pop it in your mouth and boom, you get this superhuman power for five minutes. Maybe you have this like awesome strength. Maybe you've got some speed. Maybe you just get hyped up like adrenaline. Maybe somebody shoots at you and you can repel their bullet. Uh, so it kind of reminded me a bit of that uh, Bradley Cooper movie that was pretty good, Limitless. Um, and it's definitely a pastiche of, of different superhero movies and action movies. It's got a little bit of The Matrix as well in terms of the way it's shot. What I did like about it was the uh, directing, and it's Henry Joost and Ariel Schulman who uh, put it together. There's definitely some government moments in terms of when people actually take the pill. My first thought was it reminded me of Requiem for a Dream. Remember when uh, that great Darren Aronofsky film, when they would get high on heroin, you know, the dilated pupils and those quick jump cuts. Same thing they do here. And Owen Gladwin, by the way, of Variety also noted that, yes, it does have a, a Requiem for a Dream feel when the guys are, are getting high, in this case, taking the pills. But... While I think it's a pleasant enough diversion, the downside of the film is I don't think it really had a strong villain. When it comes to superheroes and action movies, I think you have to have a strong villain. And so I, I like the conceit that you can take this pill and you're strong and you can beat stuff up. And like I said, the action is well choreographed and there's some nice visuals. 
I didn't think it particularly had a strong villain. I didn't think it had a particularly strong third act. What I did think got better in the movie was that Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's characters started to team up. And rather than being isolated as they were for much of the film, I'd rather see both those guys together. I actually think it's, it's the rare movie where I wouldn't mind a sequel, if, especially if those two were together. Like, you know, a buddy cop movie, lethal weapon, running scared, that kind of stuff. So I, I do like both those actors and their charisma together. But overall, I thought the story was, was okay. And like I said, it didn't really finish with the flourish that I was hoping for. But listen, you want an hour 40 diversion? You want an action movie that normally you'd get in the theaters right now you're getting on Netflix? It's perfect for the summer vibes. I'm going to give it two Maple Leafs. Uh, and like I said, if you like action movies, you like that style, go for it. I, I recommend it for the visuals, but I didn't think the story was particularly memorable. Joe? Yeah, I'm kind of in agreement with you, too. I, I didn't think the movie was like necessarily strong, but I thought it hit all the right spots. I thought it was a good popcorn movie for being isolated in the summer. And if you're not looking for any like too much artistic depth, this is the movie for it. But you're right, Jamie Foxx is great. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's great. The one thing that annoyed me about the movie was just their constant shoehorning of uh, the references to New Orleans. You know, I might be wrong, but I think at one point someone was like, who's, who dat? Yeah. We dat. You know, and I'm just like, I get it. You guys are in New Orleans, but you're not even getting a beignet. <laughs> what are you doing, you know? Joseph Gordon-Levitt's wearing a Gleason jersey the whole time. You know, like, it, I thought that that was a little over the top. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I like the fact it's set in New Orleans. New Orleans is one of my favorite cities in America. But, yes, the, the who dat scene definitely raised an eyebrow, especially you and, you and I as football fans. We, we recognize, probably trying a little too hard to let you know that they are in New Orleans. Brian Lowry of CNN.com. The undercooked plot works just well enough to fuel this vehicle for Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, mashing up old movies in a fast-paced package. Once again, that's Project Power. It's available on Netflix. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. Entertainment news before we get to Rags time and Sime Hopkinson. AMC, rolling it back, baby. 15 cents to go to the movies. Are you kidding me? The world's largest movie theater chain will reopen more than 100 U.S. theaters on August 20th in order to commemorate its centennial. AMC is offering movies in 2020 at 19.20 prices. That's 15 cents a ticket. Everything's been closed since the middle of March. Tenant, by the way, is supposed to hit theaters on September 3rd. AMC's other U.S. theaters will open only after authorized to do so by state and local officials. So to bring it home for all of us here in the tri-state area, you can't go to the movies in New York and New Jersey. And I don't know if that's going to change in time for September 3rd. So AMC, two-thirds of their more than 600 theater locations are going to be open just in time for Tenant, September 3rd. But I don't know if I'm going to see it. I may have to do a road trip here. I'm going to drive to Maryland just to go watch this movie. Uh, by the way, AMC opening, as I said, new safety and health measures. Keep moviegoers safe. Stay away from coronavirus. Tickets after opening day will still be available for cheaper than usual. Tickets for films like Inception, Black Panther, Back to the Future, and The Empire Strikes Back will cost $5. AMC bringing back old films since the North American box office has been essentially at a standstill. Once again, AMC will reopen some new films like Disney's New Mutants on August 28th and Tenet September 3rd for now. But I... I love the marketing here, Joe. For one day, 15 cents. I know people are skittish about going to the movies, but I will run back the minute we can. I'll wear a mask. I'll socially distance, and I look forward to it. Me too. Yeah. I mean, I 15 cents makes sense. I will do it for five cents if they if they do it. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'm going to play hardball with them regardless. I like that. So I'll do it. What about seven? Seven cents. All right. Seven cents. You're in. Uh, by the way, back to Tenet. Going to be some sneak, some sneak previews in the U.S. starting August 31st. So, August 31st debut for some, I wish I lived in Chicago. They're going to show it in 70 millimeter at Chicago's Music Box Theater. God, I'm jealous. When you can see a movie in 70 millimeter, 
I saw that for uh, the Tarantino movie, uh, Hateful Eight. I saw that for The Master, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. I saw it for Dunkirk. I mean, if you can see it in 70 millimeter, forget about it, or IMAX. Uh, multiple major areas are not yet cleared for theater reopenings, including much of New York State, California, some of Arizona. But yes, August 31st, that they're saying, and even that, by the way, that theater in Chicago, 50 people per theater or 50% of space capacity. Wow. I mean, Tenet costs $200 million. They, they wanted this thing to sell it everywhere. This is going to be tough to say, okay, fine, 50% capacity, but there's nothing else playing. So if it's the only movie playing for two months, hopefully they can recap some of that money. By the way, I haven't read any reviews, but I saw some early press because it's open, I believe, in the UK, where Christopher Nolan hails from, and it is getting unsurprisingly rave reviews. Other news. Stanley Kubrick wanted Woody Allen or Bill Murray for Eyes Wide Shut instead of Tom Cruise. Well, I love this because I hate Tom Cruise. Of the 1999 erotic drama star Tom Cruise is a cuckolded psychiatrist, Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick adapted the film from a 1926 novella titled Dream Story, and uh, now it has been revealed. A new biography on the late director by David Mickus. It's called Stanley Kubrick, an American filmmaker. Mickus writes, In the 70s, Kubrick fantasized about casting an actor in Dream Story who would have a comedian's resilience, imagining Steve Martin or Woody Allen. In a notebook from the 80s, he listed a series of possible leading men, including Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, Alan Alda, Albert Brooks, Bill Murray, or Tom Hanks. He cast an actor with a comic bone in his body, the earnest, highly deliberate Tom Cruise. Comedy would have been a weapon for the hero's self-defense. Kubrick makes him, in the end, defenseless. Eyes Wide Shut drew significant media attention while it was shot upon its release. Due to Kubrick's notorious perfectionism, the film took a year and a half to complete. I like the movie. I certainly think it's memorable. I don't think it's one of Kubrick's best, but I think it's got a lot of really haunting images, even though it took forever to be released and it certainly was controversial. But God, I love the idea of Bill Murray in the lead role. That'd be a different movie, right, Joe? Oh, that would be amazing. I mean, for, first off, the casting was dead on to pick Tom Cruise without a funny bone in his body. But Bill Murray, <laughs> I, it would have been just incredible. He would have been so charming in the role, and I think it would have taken away from the film. But he just would have been like a charming, lovable person. Yeah, because Cruise's character, I mean, he's just so repressed and just so pathetic. I mean, Nicole Kidman laughs at him after this dream when she has like sex with a bunch of soldiers. She's like fantasizing about orgies. Like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to show you. And all of a sudden, he's going into like this. Weird costume parties. <laughs> what is the password? Fidelio. What a, what a, it, is definitely, it definitely is a memorable movie. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and how about this? The world's last brick-and-mortar blockbuster rental store, Bend, Oregon, probably has had a longer shelf life than most of the movies gracing its shelves. Uh, but now it's soon going to be available to rent on Airbnb. Illustrated for the article titled, The World's Last Blockbuster Will Soon Be Available to Rent on Airbnb. The 90s-era video rental store of your dreams still exists in some guy's basement. A few years ago, a VHS obsessive overflowing with more suburban nostalgia than a season of Stranger Things found this. So the Oregonian locale will serve as an Airbnb for nostalgic travelers looking for a totally rad yet intimate slumber party at the world's last blockbuster. For just $4, $4, you can spend the night at literally the loneliest place we could hope to envision. There are only three reservations available at this time with one-night slots available September 18th, 19th, and 20. Interested parties can book the space beginning at August 17th at 1 p.m. Pacific. Check out the living room space during store hours for a limited time. You can hang out at a Blockbuster in Oregon. I love this, Joe. Me too, Adnan. With all the VHSs on the shelves, which one are you opting to for movie night at this Airbnb? It's <sighs> a great question. You know, I'd probably go old school because I, I miss the uh, annoyance of the two VHS tape situations. So like Scarface was two VHS tapes. The Godfather 2 was two VHS tapes. The Deer Hunter, memorably, 
I would tell my friend Jeff Lovelock, the second tape is much better than the first tape. So you like, you just fast forward to the first tape. You know, I like the part where they're playing Frankie Valley and playing pool. And I'm like, all right, go to the second tape. Christopher Walken, Mao. That's where it gets crazy. I'd, I'd want to watch a double header. In this case, a, a two header of VHS tapes. You? I like that a lot. I would probably go something, maybe like a sports movie, something like that, something along the lines of like Little Giants or The Sandlot, or maybe even Jurassic Park. But that would just wouldn't do it justice on a tube TV. You know what I mean? That's a good point. Do Jurassic Park because you say, God, this pales in comparison to watching this on a DVD or a seventy-inch screen. That would be definitely a throwback. Speaking of throwbacks, Rags Time with Scott Rogowski is throwing it way back to a very pivotal person in film history you probably haven't heard about plus sam hopkinson director of fear city new york versus the mafia and the mount rushmore of the best film years of all time all that more coming up mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, as previously discussed here on Cinephile, a terrific documentary currently available on Netflix. It's called Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. And a real pleasure to bring in Sam Hopkinson, the director of Fear City. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time today. You're welcome. Uh, the thing that I was struck by is I've seen so many movies of this genre, right? I mean, there's a lot of people like me who love true crime genre, mafia genre, et cetera. And yet I thought you approached it in a very unique way in that rather than focusing on the wise guys, rather than glorifying the mafia, you focused on the true heroes here, which is law enforcement. What was your approach when you were attacking this material? Well, I mean, it was to do exactly what you've just said, um, to try and do something different by telling the story of this period from the perspective of law enforcement. So often, most of the mob movies, the series are from the perspective of the mobsters. And we wanted to do something different. And we knew that this had been a huge bugging operation. Um, so in a way, even though everybody talks about it as a mob series, a mob movie, generically, it's more like a sort of spy thriller, you know, like a techno spy thriller. And... Um, you know, we were particularly influenced by the conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 movie, which is one of my favorites, um, which which uses fragments of uh, recorded audio to piece together a, a mystery story. And that's something that we wanted to try and do in this instance. Yeah, the Gene Hackman character, uh, Harry Call, is unbelievable because apparently he's very much unlike Gene, who's a very extroverted, loud guy in that movie. He's so recessive, playing his saxophone yeah, and quiet yeah. and nerdy. And, and it's yeah. interesting. Go ahead. You were going to sit with the conversation. No, well, no, no, no. I don't want to nerd out on, um, on the conversation too much. But what's fascinating about it is it's, it's completely a sound, a sound editor's movie. Yeah. And Walter Murch, I don't know if you know the story behind it, but Walter Murch essentially, I think, recut the movie um, and changed the story based on what he heard. And, um, and inflections and emphasis on a on, on a on a on a heard conversation and the way they twist a story 
um, the way the, the the sound design, the sound editing, uh, supreme, and just a way how someone. I mean, people look at movies and they might say the story's with a director, but here's someone a long way down the line, a sound editor, who um, who made the story. The story's all about sound editing, and it's the sound editor who made the story. Yeah, I w- just watched De Palma's Blowout for the first time, and uh, I wasn't as impressed because, because, to your point, I thought it was cribbing heavily from the conversation and yeah. from Antonioni's Blowout. So I said, okay, I'm I'm glad you're influenced by those movies, but I'd rather just watch those original movies myself. But Blowout, also about a sound engineer played by the unlikeliest of people in John Travolta. Exactly, exactly. So to your point about the whole importance of surveillance, I mean, that, that's where I was like, again, I was thinking of the conversation and thinking of that lifestyle. And you're, the law enforcement guys you talk about there, I mean, it's painstaking work, Sam. Painstaking. The hours and hours of listening to nonsense. As one of the characters, said, one of the uh, persons says, uh, you know, I've never heard so many creative uses of the F word. And it's just so many generic conversations about cooking or, you know, whatever, like clothing, braggadocio. And you're just waiting for one strand of relevant information. I couldn't imagine that lifestyle. Yeah, and these guys talk a lot. So we got, you know, and in a way, the backbone of our whole uh, whole project was the search for the tapes. We got we got a fair few of them through um, the conventional route. If they were used in a trial, we could. Um, they were in the public domain, so we could get hold of them one way or another. We found a lot of other tapes by other means, um, and some amazing research went on. But a lot of those tapes had transcripts, but we didn't know which transcript fitted the tapes. And we had hours of the stuff and we just had to listen and read the transcripts. And there were a group of people who (laughs) pieced together um, what was on the tapes and what transcript fitted what tape. Very much like the the original agents were, you know, doing, you know, that's so many years back. And just and just i mean these guys talked they like to talk and they talk and talk and talk and uh if you don't know their language it kind of does sound like a foreign language <laughs> uh, and, and and um you know there's just a lot of a lot of back and forth a lot of banter not none of which is incriminating or but, but these you know the the fbi guys had to listen and listen and listen for like you said that key the key phrase the clue that might send them somewhere else. And what the, what, what the operation was all about was listening to one guy and seeing if they could get legal evidence to bug the next guy. So they sort of moved up the chain from one bug to the next. So if you bug the guy at street level, because you know he's a criminal, so you can legally do that, then you move, you listen to him and he, hopefully he talks about meeting his boss. And then his boss is implicated. So legally, you can bug his boss. And then you're listening to him. And hopefully, he talks about his boss. And then you can bug him. And, and that's the way they did it. They moved all the way up the chain. And, you know, the series, it, in a way, we had to truncate the story and the, um, the story of the investigation into three episodes. But there were a lot more steps in the actual story than, than we represented in the series. We're talking with Sam Hopkinson, Fear City, New York versus the Mafia, a limited series currently on Netflix, three episodes. It's about two and a half hours in total in length. To your point with the legal means, that's the other thing I never realized. Like as a prosecutor, you have to get information. You know, you always see this in the movies. Okay, let's get a search warrant and go from there. But it's not as easy as just asking someone to fax over a search warrant. You actually have to have information. And if you screw up, if you use the search warrant and don't find anything, it's almost like there's only so many 
bullets in, in the gun, right? Like, you can't keep going after the same guy if you use the search warrant multiple times and you don't find anything. So you better make sure you're prepared when you go in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's obviously a, a dynamic brilliantly represented in The Wire that we've all seen and loved. The, the, the whole idea that these guys, you know, the, the FBI guys couldn't just bug anyone. Um, there was a history, of course, of Hoover illegally bugging people and keeping the tapes for himself. But that's that, that was before this. And so they, they, they developed a very close relationship with the, um, the U.S. attorneys who would sanction the bugs. And they, they, they almost grouped together in teams. So it was all about, and you should see, I mean, we, and we, we didn't have time for it in the series, but the, the, the huge documents, the legal documents they had to put together to get the um, legal right to plant a listening device are, you know, they're, they're, they're huge works in themselves. And you needed one of those for every listening device. And then ev after every so many months, that needed to be renewed. You needed to go back to the judges and say, and prove that you still needed to keep listening. Ru yeah, and Rudolph Giuliani, by the way, fascinating character in Fear City because you know there's a lot you could discuss about where he's become now in terms of his defense of Trump and all the rest of it. But at that time, a very idealistic guy, Italian-American, tough kid, as you said, grew up as a boxer, could have easily become a wise guy, instead focused on law enforcement, and I think really was a crusading lawyer and a very important person, Sam. He was, I mean, in his role in this story, I think, is, which is a very, and I would say this is a very Giuliani-esque sort of um, uh, gesture, is he came, th this bugging operation had been going on for some time before he became US attorney. And he, he came in quite late. There was already evidence that um, the commission of the mob could possibly be um, tried as a, as a criminal enterprise in itself in a courtroom. But I think what he saw is he saw the, um, the value of a grand gesture of getting all the bosses of all the five New York uh, crime families into the same courtroom at the same time and to be tried as the commission, the, the board of directors of the mafia. And that, so I would say, He's a character of the grand gesture, and that's what makes him a politician, and, and that's what he brought to all of this. Yeah, and it's uh, funny how people describe him being as, uh, you know, he likes the cameras and enjoy the publicity, so to speak. But I think ultimately, I mean, that, that's kind of besides the point. If the guy is ultimately doing a good job, who cares if he's seeking the camera and seeking the limelight, right? I, I mean, he was a politician. I mean, he, and I, I think he, he, he knows, he knew how to play the media, and he still does. And that's, but I, I, I don't, you know, that's, that's what politicians do. Yeah, exactly. That's part of the role of the lifestyle. In terms of the five families, I always looked at it like a sports team. When I was a kid, you'd read about it and stuff, true crime. Okay, which one's your favorite of the five families? <laughs> I, I'm not going to phrase it to you that way, but which one did you find the most intriguing? Because I do find it amusing. Like Each of them had a so-called clean operation. So one is doing waste management, one is yeah. into garments, one is into this. Which of the five families did you find most interesting in terms of your research? Um, well, I think... The Gambinos probably because you had Castellano and then after him Gotti and they're, they're probably the most dramatic of the lot, to be honest. Um, the Genovese are interesting, of course, because they were the biggest, but they were the quietest. And, you know, the Gambi with the Gambinos, you had figureheads like Castellano and Gotti. Um, uh, the Genovese, uh, you know, in a way, I suppose 
Fat Tony Salerno was a figurehead of a sort, but he, you know, he came from the streets. He was a bookie. He was a, he's a boxing bookmaker. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and they kept very quiet. And in fact, it was only, you know, it was only realized after the commission trial that that man actually wasn't the boss of that family, but he was the, you know, he was the sort of front man, the street boss. Um, and there was a guy called Vincent Gigante, the, the chin, um, who, who again, kept very quiet. He was just off the radar. Um, and in a way, I suppose, if you're going to talk about it in terms of success of these families, they were the most successful probably because they were the most demure. They did, little was known about them and they kept, they kept in the shadows. Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. Sam Hopkinson is a director. I encourage you all to check it out on Netflix. Last one for you, Sam. Is there anything that you learned particularly in your research and your study of this that you think most people don't realize or should realize about the Mafia when it comes to law enforcement? Maybe in addendum to the fact law enforcement has been you know, criticized, obviously, the events in, in America the last few months. Is there something that you learned that you want people to learn from law enforcement, particularly from surveillance? Well, what was interesting about this story is, is you know, it's, it's an episode that happened before the time frame of our story, and I sort of desperately wanted it to be part of the film. But there, there was, there was in the early to mid seventies, there was a lot of criticism of the FBI, you know, and as the as the mobsters or the Italians would tell you, you know, FBI stood for forever busting Italians, uh, and and you know, and there was a feeling that they were. You know that this whole thing that the mafia was sort of created by the by the FBI to to take down. It's clearly not true, but um, as one as one mob lawyer who isn't in the series said to me, you know, you've got to realise this is this is just a gate. This is this is a story of two gangs: the mafia and law enforcement. And uh, again, it's I mean, clearly there's a side that is. Uh, you know, the, the side that is being illegal and the side that is trying to get them. But I, I think to some extent, it's true that, it, you know, it became a a grudge match between these two groups of people. And, you know, clearly, you know, there were characters and we could, we, we didn't really have time to go into it in the series, but, you know, clearly they were, they were, they were bent cops that you know where they were bent fbi agents i don't really know but i mean you know clearly the line between the cops and the robbers was was not you know it's a pretty fine one yeah two sides of the same coin as some people like to say sam hopkins in the director of fear city new york versus the mafia a limited series on netflix i encourage all of you to check it out it's three episodes about two and a half hours in length Riveting stuff from start to finish. Sam coming to us from the UK. I hope everything's okay over there as far as uh, dealing with COVID-19, the pandemic. I have a lot of family on my mom's side in England, and they tell me they're doing much better than America. So I hope you and your family are keeping well. Yeah, we are, thanks. I mean, it feels it feels surreal. It's, it's you know, we're, we're sort of, I'm stuck at home. I'm trying, at the moment, I'm directing my next film in the States remotely. So after this, after this experience, podcast experience, I'm, I'm going on to Zoom to interview a bunch of people about a completely different story via via zoom which is a very very strange experience so you know the way it's affected i suppose the filmmaking community is um is 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 interesting and i think it there are elements that might change it forever but you know as as with all um as with all things but uh certainly it's it's trying to make a film during covid when you have to travel and can't is uh it's an interesting experience. Yeah, I could only imagine. I hope the new film is as successful and as good as Fear City was because I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed our time today. Thanks, Sam. 
Thank you very much. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Get ready, guys and gals. It's time for Rags Time with Scott Rogowski. That's right. Rags Time is back in full effect. Joining us from Mountain Time, you're about to go on a hike but still making time for all of us here in Cinefile. You're a good man, Rags. I come from top the mountain, baby, where the people <laughs> come to pray. Here in Zion National Park, I'm spreading my legs across the country, stretching out here during this quarantine pandemic, staying safe, masks on, of course, but I figured, why not escape New York like Kurt Russell if I can? <laughs> John Carpenter would be proud. There's no question about it. One thought before we launch into the latest rags time. And by the way, you can always follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram at Scott Rogowski. You know, I, I'm at work and I just look forlornly at your desk and I just see that pile of papers we were going to show Patterson. I see the Warren Beatty book that I gave you. I see all the cards that I gave you, which you told me you were worthless. There's a dress shirt, which is like a it's it's a, a slim fit. It hasn't been opened yet. Like, what should I, when are you going to pick this stuff up? Should I give this to you? How is this going to happen? Can I send the Salvation Army to the office just to pack it all up? <laughs> I don't know, man. I'll be back there at some point. Technically, I'm still uh, employed <laughs> for now. <laughs> so I, uh, they may call me in for an MLB Central or a uh, high heat, or perhaps you and I could team up on something. Who knows? We'll, we can only we'll dream of that. I love that Ragston was about Fellini last time. Lestrada, uh, right. definitely cutting some sacred cows because you weren't enamored of it as much as others. What do we have this time here at Rags time? Well, I teased the old guard a little bit and uh, the new Netflix blockbuster. Apparently, it's, it's one of the top 10 most viewed Netflix movies of all time, most streamed. Uh, first action movie by a black female director, which is quite notable. Um, and I turned it on. I said, you know what? My, <laughs> I got some free time here while uh, waiting for my vacation to start. So uh, I, I, I got through half of it before I had to turn it off before things got busy. You know, it's pretty cool. I mean, there's uh, bullets and guns. It's a lot of that, which, you know, I don't love to see. But uh, the premise of this one is that these are these are a small band of super, super not quite superheroes. They're like superhuman in the sense that they, they don't die. They're immortal. Mm. And they've lived for hundreds of years. Some of them, I think Charlie Theron's character has lived for almost a millennia. And uh, they just keep being reborn. They get killed and reborn, killed and reborn. And so that's kind of interesting. And of course, they're trying to be kidnapped by the government. You know, so it's a it's standard, sort of more of a standard action plot for like these people with power to try to be kidnapped. 
that sort of thing. Uh, I've sort of, I sort of see the plot developing before it happens, you know. So it's mm. not that uh, that exciting. I go, oh, that guy's going to turn on him, double cross, of course, to set up, yada yada. So you know, from that point of view. But it, it, it was, it's a good action flick if you're into that. But I don't want to talk about that end yet. You know, I'm not into the new stuff, frankly. You know that. I love it. That's what I like about you. We're going to go old school. This is for hardcore cinephiles here. I'm going to take this moment to uh, plug another podcast. And and don't worry, it's not competitive. Is it the fish podcast you're no, going to do? No, okay. no, no. <laughs> we got to do that, though. Stay tuned for Adnan as the uh, <laughs> pilot guest on my first ever fish podcast. But no, this is a podcast called You Must Remember This. Have you heard of this mm, podcast? I have, yeah, yeah. Classic old films of the past. Of course, it's a line from Casablanca. Yeah. And uh, I don't think I've listened to it. I always see it pop up. It's like, it's like when you go to a bookstore, you buy a book, you would also like this. It's like a recommended podcast from yeah, me. Yeah, and, and I, I, I think it, you, know, you should certainly listen to it. Your listeners can add this to their diet because it is not competitive. What what you do is very different. You're reviewing movies, talking about current things. This podcast takes – it's almost like a John Oliver of movie podcasts. They do deep dives. But I'm talking about season-long dives. They'll take an entire six, eight, ten-episode season to discuss one topic in specific. I think the last season, previous to this newest one, was um, – Song of the South, the Disney movie Song of the South, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. how that was developed and created, and then you know re released into theaters over many decades. I mean, that thing was in theaters in 1986. It was in theaters. Wow. They kept re-releasing it, so that's a whole fascinating season. But this one I want to talk about is about a woman named Polly Platt. Do you know who Polly Platt is? I don't know. See, I know I Sylvia mean, Plath. I don't know Polly Platt. <laughs> Right. I know and Oliver you, Platt. You know, I don't know Oliver Platt. <laughs> and his brother Adam, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But this is about film producer, production designer, screenwriter, Polly Platt, the first female art director accepted into Hollywood's Art Directors Guild. Wow. She is probably most known, unfortunately, if you know her at all, as the ex-wife of Peter Bogdanovich. Ooh. And the key, some would say, the key element, the key ingredient to his success as a director. Wow. So that's what this podcast actually discovers. Of course, I don't want to give it all away. And it is, you know, it's a 10 episode, each episode being an hour long. So it's a lengthy podcast. And the reason it's so long is because Karina Longworth, the host, was able to have, get access to Polly Platt's unfinished memoir from her daughter. So this is a you know, Polly, Polly Platt died of ALS in 2011. So she uh, didn't get a chance to finish her memoir, but she discusses in detail her early life, her early career with Bogdanovich, all the way up to Bottle Rocket, because she was a producer on Wes Anderson's first film, Bottle Rocket. And in addition to her work with Bogdanovich, you know, she was instrumental in launching Cameron Crowe's career. She produced Say Anything, his mm. first film. Of course, discovering Sybil Shepard, she was instrumental in Tatum O'Neill, Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson. They all owe their careers in, a part, in part to Polly Platt. And this is an amazing nugget of her career. Platt is the one who suggested that James L. Brooks meet with Matt Groening. Wow, The Simpsons, yes. And that meeting, yes, resulted in The Simpsons. Now, this is, you know, of course, everyone has their own side to the story, but Karina's an amazing job talking to so many people who knew her, worked with her, her family, friends, other filmmakers, other, other people in the business, and they all paint the pictures, basically. She was, you know, again, getting back to Bogdanovich, they met when he was just a critic, he wasn't making films, but he was, so, oh my God, this guy. When you hear about early Bogdanovich, how vain he was, she, she says the first date they had, he kept looking himself in the mirror and fixing his hair the whole Unbelievable time. Unbelievable salad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did have luscious, luxurious hair. 
But, you know, talking about how he's going to be, he's like, I have to direct my first film by 25 because Orson Welles directed Citizen Game. I thought, you know, so he, he was so obsessed with Howard Hawks and John Ford, you know, the Cahiers de Cinema, the auteur theory. Bogdanovich was seeped in that. And, yeah. and to her credit, Polly Platt was also a huge film buff because she had a very difficult childhood. She sort of filled those gaps. You know, she, she, was her, she was an army brat. Her father and mother were both alcoholics. They were living out in post-war Germany. Everything was bombed out, nothing to do. And she filled her time watching movies. And then, you know, she, 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 she basically said, it's a good thing I know about all these other directors and films because Bogdanovich, Peter wouldn't even talk to me. He wouldn't even go on a date with me if I didn't know this stuff. So the fact wow. that they were so simpatico in that way, but really, when you, when you think about the last picture show, Polly was the production designer on that film, recommended Sybil Shepherd for the role, wow. got the book, Larry McMurtry's novel, suggested Bogdanovich make that novel into a film. He was like, what? This isn't a movie. And he's like, no, this is, this is your movie. I know you have nothing to do with, with Texas. I know this is, this is not your childhood in that respect, but there are themes, there are elements from that story that you can relate to, that I can relate to, and they, they crafted that together. And that's the key thing here. You know, they, they were doing these early movies together. She co-wrote Targets, his first movie. Wow. Which I, I get, I, I, I love that I've started listening to this podcast now because in the last couple of months on Criterion, going back to Criterion, I was going deep into Bogdanovich. I watched Targets. I watched Last Picture Show. What's up, Doc? Paper Moon. I saw those all in like a three-week period. Yeah, I recommended What's Up, Doc, to you, and you agree. Very funny movie. Great yes. comedy. Yes, and hysterical and, and, and the whole... Dynamic with O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill. Yeah. yeah, but so she, you know, she, despite so basically, th this is this is where the story gets absolutely wild, and why I absolutely recommend this podcast. Okay. Because you hear, you know, th the story of her life could be a movie. She works with Bogdanovich, recommends Civil Shepherd, and then then if you know Bogdanovich's career in his life, you know what happened then. Bogdanovich left Polly for Civil Shepherd. She's part of this love triangle. <laughs> the woman, this young woman, ten years her junior. That she recommends for the movie, Peter's like, yeah, peace. I'm taking her out now. Oh. This young thing, this pretty baby. And they go off and have their affair and they get married and leaving Polly Platt, you know, breakdown of their marriage, horrible breakdown, which is actually mimicked. Uh, it, it, Nora, I think it's Nora Ephron who like, what's the movie with Tatum O'Neill? It, it, it's like about their marriage, essentially. I'm, I'm blanking on the movie now, but, but I think like Nora Ephron wrote a movie about their marriage because it was so public. Yeah, Nora Ephron, just a sleepless in Seattle, you know, stuff of that ilk. Yeah, it, it was that kind of. But, Harry Mitzalis, yeah. But I mean, when you look at her credits, even after they broke up, even Paul, after Paul and Peter broke up, she still worked with him. Production designer on What's Up Doc and Paper Moon. She was working on, uh, uh, she worked with James L. Brooks. She worked extensively with him. Mm -hmm. Executive vice president of Gracie Films. She was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Art Direction in Terms of Endearment. That was her, her her only nomination, eighty three. Co producing so many of those movies, broadcast news, War of the Roses, like I said, Bottle Rocket, saying anything, and then of course The Simpsons having that role. So, you know, the podcast is called Polly Platt, the Invisible Woman, because that's really what she was. When you think about the history of Hollywood in the last fifty years, she's had a key role in so many of these amazing films, amazing careers, and yet you had never heard of her, I had never heard of her, and so many people probably have never heard of her. And so as Karina really does her life justice, talks to her kids, and, and, and just you know brings a full picture of this woman who really had a tragic early life. Her first husband died when he was like 21 in a car accident and all this stuff moving around. But boy, oh boy, it is, it is something to listen to. So I know we usually talk movies on your podcast. You probably don't talk other podcasts. No, but this, this is film history. This is good stuff. This I is like Jermaine. it. This is Jermaine. Yeah. All right. So you must remember this. That's the podcast, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. 
as you said, an integral part of Peter Bogdanovich's career and James L. Brooks. Speaking of podcasts, you sent me a tweet. Somebody had said, I, I can't get up with the Peter Bogdanovich podcast on TCM. Have you dived into that? Because oh, Peter is also a great raconteur. I, I, might, I might do it if he talks about Dorothy Stratton. Does he get into that at all? Because that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dude, yeah, that's, that's not, yeah. Because, oh my God. I mean, that gets discussed too. Dorothy Stratton. And that whole murder and that whole tragedy, and then Bogdanovich became obsessed with her. I know you know this, right? Yeah, it's just it's completely. This he never never recovered really in many ways. Married her younger sister, Ugh. who was twelve years old when Dorothy was killed. Just Ugh. think about the age differences here. You know, I'm dating a younger woman now. It's hitting home for me a little bit, but this is this is a little sick. <laughs> This is yeah, a little sick. Three to five years is not a big deal compared to like 20 years, whatever What's it was. With, yeah, 20, 30 years. What's with these auteurs out there from the 70s? Polanski, Woody Allen, Bogdanovich, they're all creeps, yes. aren't they? We can agree. It is, it is true. When you try to separate fact from fiction, you look at whatever their movies and the artistic appeal they have. As human beings, you'd go, God, a lot of these guys are just absolute creeps. Is it just that? And like you said, the vanity is a big part of it too. Their egos are just incredible. Just out of, the, out of this world egos. Uh, is, is it the straight white male privilege? Is that what it is? What do you think these guys can get away with anything? Maybe that's Yeah, part I think it. it's part of it too. And you're right. That 70s era, I mean, that's where the auteurs had so much power, which resulted in, you know, for my money, as great a decade of filmmaking as you'll ever see. But you're right. Unfortunately, there's some downsides as well. All right. Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, baby. I love it. Great book. Peter Biskin. If you haven't read that book, you got to check that out. Uh, Rags is about to go on a hike. Check him out once again on Twitter and Instagram, at Scott Rogowski. Polly Platt, the invisible woman, you must remember this. Yeah, make sure you unsubscribe to Adnan's podcast and subscribe to <laughs> No, no, there's room for both. There's room and, for both. And I want you to read this book, Ant Kind by Charlie Kaufman. I reviewed it on the previous Cinefile. I know you always listen. I listen. I listen. Yeah. That's why I figured. The- I figured I could talk about a podcast this week because you talked about a book last week. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're going farther and farther away from movies. But how about the material in this book? Like, some of it is just filthy, uh, but it... The Trump, the Trump scenes, the trunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a filthy, he's another filthy bastard. I love him. And so do you. And that's why I love you, buddy. That, that's why we get along so well. <laughs> Thanks, Rex. You got it, pal. Talk to you later. Mount Rushmore. All right, the Mount Rushmore of best film years, as suggested by Rob Lemley. Listen, there's been a lot of great years in movie history. There's no question about it. When you go through some of these, I'm going to kick it off with 1976. Yes, it's known for Rocky, but more importantly, Scorsese's Taxi Driver, Sidney Lumet's Network, All the President's Men, and Marathon Man. I mean, Marathon Man, a great thriller, as Laurence Olivier once looked at Dustin Hoffman, who was running all night and just, you know, obsessed with method acting and wanted to look like he was disheveled and up all night. Olivier said to him, he should try acting. It's a lot easier. Marathon Man, the scene with Olivier with the drill, unforgettable. All the President's Men, if you love Spotlight, this is like the first, well, not the first, but one of the truly great journalism movies uh, with Woodward and Bernstein trying to take down Tricky Dick. I've talked a ton about Taxi Driver. Network predicted the future. And yeah, by the way, Rocky, pretty iconic movie. Wouldn't have been my pick for best picture. But yes, it obviously is a great film because of all that it has going forward. And it is certainly indelible and really struck a chord with people. The other one that's a no-brainer is 1999. We've discussed this before. For God's sake, there was a book written about it. And we have the author here on Cinephile. American Beauty, I don't think should have won Best Picture, but out but The Matrix and Fight Club, action movies which have more going on than you expect. The Sixth Sense, an ending that absolutely hoodwinks you. 
Being John Malkovich, incredibly original. I talked with Charlie Coppins and Kind, last time in Cinephile. Magnolia, which is my favorite movie of that year. Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick, aforementioned. Office Space, quite simply one of the great sleeper comedies of the last 20 years. The Blair Witch Project, yes, you can make fun of it, but everybody saw it, and it certainly was influential. The Iron Giant, Joe Loves. Election, early Alexander Payne. And Boys Don't Cry, Hilary Swank wins an Oscar. 1999, God, what a great year that was. Very, very strong. Uh, next up, I'm going to go with <laughs> 1994, and you say, really? But I thought you hated Forrest Gump. Yes, I do. But how about the other movies? You've got Pulp Fiction, Tarantino's best film. you got The Shawshank Redemption, one of the most loved films of the last 25 years. Kevin Smith's Clerks, very funny. Hoop Dreams, for me, my favorite basketball movie, one of the greatest documentaries of all time. Natural Born Killers, Oliver Stone, Gonzo filmmaking, incredible. Quiz Show, which I love, Robert Redford film. With Ray Fiennes and John Turturro, Rob Morrow, a tremendous cast all the way around. If you want an action movie, fine. we got speed as well. You want comedies? You got The Mask. Uh, you want a great animated film? The Lion King, Hamlet. I mean, 1994 certainly was an incredible year. And I'll wind it up with 1939. There's not a lot of depth, but it's top heavy. The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. I mean, it's tough to knock out those. Plus, you get Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with the great Jimmy Stewart. Uh, pretty amazing. Also, John Wayne, John Ford did Stagecoach that year. Wow. For those four alone, The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and Stagecoach, 1939 is in for me. So the Mount Rushmore of the greatest years in film history of all time, 1976, 1999, 1939, and 1994. There's some great honorable mentions. I'm sure Joe is going to dive into some of those. Uh, 1982, like you got Blade Runner, you got Gandhi. Uh, very close for me. I, I would have liked to try to get 1967 in because uh, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night, Cool Hand Luke, but some great movies certainly from those years. Joe, what do you got? So I'm going to back you up on 1999 for all the reasons that we've talked about on past episodes, for all the reasons that you just mentioned, just the, the year of the indie film, just incredible movies that came out that year. I'm also going to back you up on 1939 just for the influence of Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach, all movies that are still at the forefront of conversations in this medium for how great they are. Um, so those two are definitely in. I'm going to go with 2007. 2007 is when There Will Be Blood came out, uh, No Country for Old Men, um, just a whole host of movies that are, are just incredible. And um, Disturbia Into the Wild came out that year. Um, I really liked it. So did Across the Universe, so maybe that takes away from 2007 now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> and then I'm going, I see what you're saying about 1976, I'll also throw in uh, Brian De Palma's Obsession came out in 1976, too. Nice. Um, but I'm going to go with 2009 with The King's Speech winning Best Picture that year. Black Swan came out that year, 127 Hours. The Fighter came out that year. Inception came out that year. I've talked about that in the past, but uh, still a visually stunning, giant blockbuster. The Social Network, Toy Story 3, the True Grit remake by the Coen brothers. I know that that gets mixed reviews. I personally really liked it. Uh, so my four are going to be 1999, 1939, 2007, and 2009. I love the 2007 because you're right. There will be blood, no country for old men. I mean, both of those are about as good as it gets. And um, yeah, I, I was not a fan of True Grit, I'll be honest, as much as I like the Coen brothers. But those are some pretty good movies in there. I mean, Social Network, obviously. And I know the King's Speech is one of your all-time favorite movies. So 
It's definitely fun when you look back at some of these years. 1985, Back to the Future, Out of Africa, The Goonies, The Breakfast Club. Uh, 1941, God, that's a good one because you got Citizen Kane, The Maltese Falcon, How Green Was My Valley, Sergeant York, and you get Dumbo. 1962, I recently reviewed Lawrence of Arabia. You get To Kill a Mockingbird, The Longest Day, Dr. No, Cape Fear with Mitchum, The Manchurian Candidate. God, there's, there's definitely been some great ones over the years, but I like our list a lot. So as always, you can hit us up uh, at Adnan Esperic, at Cinephile Pod, and uh, Joe is on Twitter as well. Thanks once again to Scott Rogowski for Rags Time. Thank you to Sam Hopkinson for giving his time, the director of Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. Next time here on Cinephile, I'm going to be reviewing Chasing the Light, Oliver Stone's new book, a memoir about his early days growing up and his first foray into film stories about Scarface, Midnight Express, Salvador, and Platoon. The book ends right after he wins the Best Director Oscar for Platoon. But really good story. And we're going to do the Mount Rushmore Oliver Stone movies next time as well in honor of that book. And I'm sure I'll find some movies that I can watch in the meantime. As always, thank you for checking out Cinephile. And we'll see you at the movies. Thank you.